Um, this morning, we know that in the beginning, God created mankind, right? You and I, and I'm sorry, yeah, I even, the worship's at the end, and I got things all out of whack. It's all good, messing with everyone's routines. I love, it's good when God messes with our routines. We know God created us for that purpose. We were never created to live this life without God. He never wanted that to be the case. When he created us, he literally walked with us, with mankind. Didn't leave us on our own, ever. And that's a word of encouragement for you this morning. It doesn't matter where you're at or what you're into. It doesn't matter how far you're trying to run from God. You can't. He will not ever abandon you. He will never forsake you. Never give up on you. It's just not who our God is. And the interesting thing is that even after we intentionally sinned against God, you know the whole story of Adam and Eve in the garden, God still pursued them even in their sinful state. They were walking away from God. They did what he told them not to do, and they were hiding because of it. But yet he pursued them. And I'm going to start here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Um, how's it going? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. This is going to be rough. You, you just can't control people. We weren't designed to do that. And Meg, that's a girl you don't control. But I'm going to try it this morning, okay? Right? I love that strong will. No, no guy's ever going to mess with her. Woo! Yeah. All right. So, in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. Then Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I just love that picture. God's literally hanging out with Adam and Eve, walking in the garden, literally, physically hanging out with them. Of course, we know mankind chose to go their own way, away from God and to their own. And it says that when they heard God walking, you ever do that as a parent? You know, you know your kids are into something bad and you just kind of make yourself known you know i've done that a couple of times i kind of walk a little heavy because our floors you know you hear it oh dad's coming you know that's totally what was happening here they are busted they know they done screwed up and 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 dad's coming you know literally god the father's coming and so it says they hid from the lord god among the trees of the garden first game of hide and seek god always wins at hide and seek you just can't hide from him you know so it says so the Lord God called out to the man. He didn't go behind the tree and be like, peekaboo, you know, I got gotcha. you. Know? No, he called out, and he asked this. He said, where are you? Now, for those of you who don't know, God wasn't asking because he didn't know the answer. He knew where they were at. That's why he was walking over there toward them. He knew where they were at. He knew what had happened. He was rhetorically asking that question because I believe he is asking that same question this morning. Where are you? Where are you at right now? Not just in New Mind, Pennsylvania. No dad, it's not dad joke time. This is, you know, where are we at, you know, spiritually? He rhetorically asked him that question because Adam and Eve needed to be more aware of that true answer. Where were they at? Where were they at in relation to God right now? Because God had, didn't change. God didn't move. He was still there in the cold of the day walking through the garden. The question is always, where are we at? God doesn't change. He doesn't move. He's right near us. The question is, where are we at? Because mankind not only chose to sin and go their own way in that way, they also, afterward, they chose to surrender to fear. It's so prevalent in our culture right now today. They chose to surrender and to give in to fear and to run from that relationship. Can you imagine how that probably made God feel when he was walking out there in the cool of the day in the garden and the next thing you know, they go running away from him when he knew that they needed him. I don't know, you know, again, parenting, you know, if you've ever experienced that with your child, maybe your grown children or grandchildren, you know, you know they need you, you know where they're at, and you wish, you long that they would come to you for help, but they just don't. And you know that the more that you might try to pursue them, the more they'll just run from you. It can be the hardest position, hardest position to be in. And so this is how God chose to respond. He called out to them and then he answered. And this was uh, Adam 
I'm sorry, you can go back one. Adam responding in verse 10. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. I believe that God is still asking that drawing question here this morning. Where are we? Where are you? Where do we turn to when life gets hard, when things get tough, when we don't have the answers, when we don't understand what's happening to us? Who do we run to when we're in need? And what do we fill our lives with when we just need some comfort, right? What do we turn to? Where do we run? God's always desired to be there for us, right, Meg? He's always desired to be there for us. There we go. He wants to be our strength, our comfort, our provider. He wants to be our everything. He's right there this morning for us. He's for you. He's not against you. He's calling out to us. He's reaching out to us. God's challenging us this morning to no longer run from him, but to really wholly surrendered run to him. Just as we are, all of our sin and shame and weaknesses, all the bonehead decisions we've made, just literally go running to him. And the hard thing is a lot of us think that we're doing that, but God's asking that question, where are you really at right now? Compare yourself, you to you, because that's the only person we can ever compare ourselves to. There's two things you need to compare yourself, you to you and you to Christ, right? Because you don't compare yourself to other people in the race that they're running and where they're at in their walk with, uh, with Christ. Where am I at compared to last year? You know, am I, am I closer to the person that I was created to be or am I slipping back into more of the person I was born to be? You know, more of my fleshy old sinful self or more like Christ, you know, more like the person he created me to be. That's, that's who we need to compare ourselves to and to realize where we're at. You know, us to the person that we were created to be, and how, how far off are we from that? Because God wants to fill in that gap. He doesn't want you to work for it. He wants to fill in that gap. He wants to take you to that place if you let him. And this morning, he is inviting us to come just as we are. There's no need to hide any of those things. Um, Adam and Eve, they hid from God because of their sin. God doesn't want us to hide because of our sin. He wants us to take our sin to him. Um, I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he entered into the sanctuary of God. And when he entered into that throne room, he was undone. He cried out. He's like, woe is me. I'm an unclean man from an unclean people. And before that, he thought he was the clean one of the nation. He thought he was the faithful one following God, right? And everyone else is a bunch of dirty so-and-sos. But man, once he got into the temple... In the presence of God, he realized that he is just as dirty as the rest of them. And how did God respond to that? He had a seraphim fly and grab these hot coals and touch his lips. He took away his sin and shame. That's what God does. You don't have to let that keep you from the presence of God. In fact, we should take that into the presence of God so that he can purify us from those things and cleanse us of those things and forgive all of our sin. That's what he wants to do. Isn't that what a good, loving father wants to do? When my son screws up and he calls me, I want to come rushing in to help him. That's what a good, loving father does, right? I want to help, you know, take care of his situation, walk him out of that situation, right? I'm not going to be like, whatever, dude, made your own mess, you know? Some of our dads might have done that, but that's not a good, loving, heavenly father. That's not what he does, you know? He doesn't punish us for those things. He, he cleanses us of those things. In fact, he sacrificed his own son. We all know the story, right? That cross is empty up there. He paid a high, high price to pay the penalty of your sin, the greatest price of all. He would do anything just to be with us. He would do anything to cover our sin and shame. He wants to be our strength and our weaknesses. I mean, he just he desires to do all those things, but we have to let him. So it's time to stop running into our sin for comfort. It's time to start sprinting back into the presence of God and allow him to be our all in all. That sheltering presence that just covers us and fulfills every one of our desires with good things. From that tragic day in the garden, God still never ceased to call mankind into a right relationship with him. He never stopped calling us back into his presence and yet still today, mankind still just keeps running from God, right? It just keeps running from God. Um, 
and we're just broken as a result. We're not whole and complete as a result. We're not living a full, abundant life as a result. We're the ones missing out, right? We're the ones missing out when we're not embracing that relationship with Christ and running into the presence of God. And we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to old school this morning. Old school is the new school. Exodus chapter 13, not 13, 19, verses 3 through 8. We're going back to an encounter that God had with Moses. It says here, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And he said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob. This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You yourselves seen how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We know that God made a way where there was no way. We couldn't come running to him. And instead, he went running to us. He met with us and he carried us into his presence. He did all the hard work. Then he goes on, he says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that I want you to speak to the Israelites. And so Moses went back summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that God had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then we turn a few verses to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. So they said, yep, sounds good to us. We'll do that. And so God came to them and he spoke these words. I am the Lord your God. And he's speaking to all the people at this point. He said, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you out of the land of slavery. And then it says that when the people saw the thunder and lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain and smoke as they heard the voice of the Lord, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. They stayed at a distance while Moses entered in. Then they told Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us or we will certainly die. How often are we like the Israelites, right? God's people. We say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm yours. Your will, your way, you know. We say that with our lips, and then when it comes time for the rubber to meet the road, and it comes time to enter in, we're like, nope, nope, nope. Someone else will do it. God will send someone else to do it. I'm too this, I'm too that, I'm too scared. That's really what it came down to. They were too afraid. God longed to meet with the people. He wanted to have a relationship with them all. And they just kept them stiff-armed. They would not enter in. They would not come any closer. What are we missing out on? Because we stay surfacey in our relationship with God. It's just lip speak, right? Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Yeah, God has come to test you, but it's so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. Like, they were missing it. The fear was a good, healthy thing. It's good to have a fear of God. But that fear of God isn't to cause you to run away from Him and into sin, like the Israelites were doing. That, that's to cause you to want to enter in, right? Think about it this way. You know, you got someone that's bullying you at, at school, you know. Do you, do you want your... Big old, like, eight-foot tough, you know, dad who's a little scary to come and deal with that situation? Or do you want someone like me, you know, a little puny 90-pound wuss, you know? What, what would you rather have? Fear of the Lord is a good thing, right? It's a, it's a good thing. That fear is a healthy thing when, you're, when you know that your Lord is pff, scary. He's big. He's powerful. He can do anything. I mean, he's on this mountain that's smoking. He's speaking out and everything, you know? But that big scary thing should actually cause you to feel safe and comforted. 
that your God is going to protect you and take care of you. You don't have to be afraid of anything else because your God, your Father, has got your back. It's not to be afraid of Him. It's to cause you to not be afraid of anything else because He's got your back, right? Moses said this fear was intended to keep you away from sin, not to run into it. Now, what are we missing out on, I wonder, so often because we, we, we don't enter in? Verse 21 says this, The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And the only reason that Moses was so bold is to enter in to that scary, uncomfortable place was because he trusted God. He knew, he knew that his God loved him and cared for him and would shelter him and protect him. He didn't need to be afraid of him. And God is still asking that drawing question, where are you? Which category do we fit into, right? Where are you? Do we trust God? Do we step into the realm of the unknown where he is? Or do we run away from him and we just cling to what's familiar? Kind of like Linus and his blankie, you know? We cling to those things that are familiar. Whether they're good for us or not, they comfort us, don't they? So we go run into them and we don't step in to the unfamiliar place where God is. But what do we miss out on when we stay so surfacey in our relationship with God, right? I mean, what are we missing out on? Well, because we, we know about God, but we really don't know God. We can quote some verses about him, but, oh, anyways, we, we, but we don't really know him. You know what I mean? I, I can tell you all kinds of things about Mark. I can quote all kinds of facts about him. And a lot of Christians think that that's a relationship with God. But do they really know him? Do they know how he would respond in a situation? Do they know what he would say in a situation? Do they really know him, right? There's a difference. Lynn, she'd tell you every little detail. She'll tell you how crazy he is and awesome he is and everything, right? You know? Where's your relationship at with God? Do you just know about him? Or do you know him? Because he wants you to know him the way that, like, I know Becky, you know? That intimately, that you just, you could probably speak on their behalf because you just know them that well. Not only do I know her fully, but she fully knows me and all my quirks and things that annoy her and irritate her, you know? That, that's that deep of an intimate relationship that God wants to have with us. And it shouldn't be a scary thing. He already knows everything about us. It should be an exciting thing to get to know him better, to get to know his goodness more, more fully, Right? What happens when we keep God as an acquaintance that will just help us out of a bind? Is that our prayer life? Help! <laughs> help every time you get yourself into a bind, you know? Or is your prayer life talking to him? Unwinding about the day. Like, oh, Jesus, you know what I'm, you know what I'm struggling with right now? I need your help right now. You know? Do you have that, that intimate relationship where you're just constantly in communication or do you just, you know, call them up whenever you need bailed, right? Where are we at? What are we missing when we seek after the works and the benefits of God instead of seeking after the heart and the mind of God? There's a radical difference between just chasing after him for the things that he promised that he'll do for us and chasing after him to really get to know who he is, to get to know his heart and mind. God doesn't want to be, oh, I'm sorry, you're already there. Go back one. God doesn't want to be some distant deity separated from us. He wants to be friends with us. In fact, he said this in John chapter 15, verse 13 to 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for their friends. And he said, you are my friends if you do what I command. See, relationship works both ways, right? I can't say I trust Becky. And then do the opposite of everything she, you know, would recommends. And yeah, I know. I, I know. Right? I got some trust issues with my wife, right? And I've, it's bitten me more time than one, you know? I don't know how many times I've been, you know, yeah. I'm made, yeah, anyways, I won't go into all the testimonies. She'll share all the testimonies of, of uh, when I should have listened, right? But isn't it true? That I, th this verse always rubbed me the wrong way. 
I'm like, you're saying you're not like a master and I'm not a slave. You're saying I'm a friend. Why am I only your friend if I do everything you, you command? Like, that ain't a friendship. I, tell, I warn my kids about those relationships, right? If you have to do everything that they want the way that you want it done, that ain't a friend. That's a bully. You don't need to be in that relationship, right? Like, is Jesus a bully? Once you know him, you know this verse. And it's because he wants the best for you, you know? Obeying his commands is a joy and not a burden when you realize it's actually for my benefit. Life goes a lot better, you know, when I just do what my creator, you know, created me to do. Anyways, I'll, I'll go on here because that's not really the point. That's another message for another time. He said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends because everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. There is such rich revelation, rich revelation that God has for us. He doesn't want you just to do what he tells you to do. He wants you to understand why you would do it that way. Why would I not do this? And why would I do this instead? He wants you to understand why, the heart and the reason and the intent. God desired not just for Moses and Aaron and the Levites, Meg, to, to be a, a prophetic people. He didn't just want them to enter into his presence on that day. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here, but the reality is Jesus became a great high priest, and he has invited us all into that priesthood. And that just means you get to hang out with God. You get to intercede on his behalf. You get to represent him. You get to know his heart and his mind. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10 through 10 says this, You... And sometimes, man, i got to remind myself of this, especially when I make bonehead decisions. I'm not that person. I am a chosen people. You are a chosen people. Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you with a passion and a zeal. He wants to take you from where you're at into the best you you can possibly be, into an abundant life. You're a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. Last time I read, I've been adopted into the family of God. I'm not a slave of Jesus. We're family. I was adopted into his family. Jesus is a brother, and we're all brothers and sisters. We're family. We are a royal family, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. You should be set apart from the world. Not so you can look down on the world, but there should be something different about you, right? If you've given your life to Christ, then something should be different about you that makes you different. That's what holy means. Holy means set apart. Literally, look at the Old Testament. Here's a spoon. Ain't nothing special about this spoon. It's just a spoon. I'm going to use it for God. All of a sudden, that became holy. Why? Because it was set apart for the purposes of God. That's what holy means. It's very simple. doesn't mean that you're better than anyone. doesn't mean you have your life together more than anyone else. It just means you've, been, you've chosen to set yourself apart for God. I'm not this old wooden spoon anymore. Now I'm God's spoon. When you look at the temple, it's literally it was that, that literal, you know? When it was brought in the temple to be used for God's purposes, all of a sudden it's holy. And it was covered by the blood and everything, and you are too, right? We're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. Why? Because you're God's special possession. You're the Lord's. You're not your own. And that is awesome. That's something special. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. You are different now, right? You are set apart. You are holy. You're God's special possession. You are, you are chosen. Something incredible about all of this. Something incredible about it all, right? We go back to Exodus 33 into this encounter. And it says, but, so now Moses, he used to do this. He would take a tent and he'd pitch it outside the camp some distance away. And he called it the tent of the meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go out to the tent of the meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents. They would watch Moses until he entered the tent. And when Moses would go into the tent, 
A pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. The glory of the Lord would come. While the Lord would speak to Moses, it would stay there. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their own tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then Moses would return to the camp But, remember, buts are big in the Bible, right? But, his young aide Joshua, son of Nun. I always want to go to the, never mind, I won't go there. Yeah, I'm going to listen to my wife this time and not go into my Monty Python spiel. Anyways, yes, um, the son of Nun did not leave the tent. And so here's the question this morning. I mean, this is, you know, not just old ritualistic stuff. This applies to us here today. What does your worship consist of? Where are you right now? Do you stand by at a distance and worship the God far away? Or do you enter in, right? Where are you? Is our worship true and proper worship? Do we run boldly before the throne of God in joyous praise like you're hanging out with your best friend? When I see my best friend at Walmart, I don't run two aisles away to try not running into them, right? In fact, I've been at Walmart people yelling, Steve, you know? That's what you do when you see someone that you like and you care about and you haven't seen them in a while. You're excited to see them. You come running and you're shouting and you don't care who hears the conversation that's going on, you know? Or, or here in Western PA, here's what happens. You're driving along a road, and you see your buddy. You don't care who's back there. Like, come on. You're sitting there holding up the road. How many times I've encountered this, you know, because they're chit-chatting, they're catching up, and anyways, right? I don't know if it's a Western PA thing or what. Anybody ever encounter that? Yeah, exactly. Anyways, it's, it's fun when you're that person, but frustrating when you're behind them trying to get someplace. Yeah, yeah. or in the aisles of Walmart, and your carts are there, and it's like, come on, people, I need peanut butter, you know? God, God, the people in Newmont need peanut butter, okay? I'm just trying to do the work of the God here, and uh, anyways. <laughs> but what does your worship consist of? Do you meet face-to-face with Jesus daily? Or do you just kind of worship at a distance while others enter in? I believe God is asking that drawing question. Where are you? What does your worship look like? Are you one out there living in the world really no different from people who don't know God? Seriously, when people look at your life, do they see Christ in you? Or do they just see another person, right? What do they see? Are you hanging out in your tent, staying near your comfort zone, but you're still worshiping, but you're worshiping that God over there, right? Like most of the people were, right? They stayed at the entrance of their tent, they, they stayed near their home. Like, you know, it's like vir- the virtual services today. That's basically what they were doing back in the day, you know. I'm worshiping here at my house, and, and, and the real service is happening over there. That's, that, that's where God is, but God's kind of scary, so I'm going to hang out at my house, and I'm worshiping, and I'm praising, and everything's good, right? Right? Is that where your worship's at? Or are you like Moses? He met with God face to face. But here was the heart motive, and you can read through the Old Testament and see that this was the heart motive of Moses. Okay, I got a task here. I'm leading God's people. What do you need me to do? What do you need me to tell them, and where do we need to head next? It was all business. What do I need to do to please you, God? You know, it was just very surfacey. It was was all about the business, right? Or are we like Joshua? He met with God face to face the same as Moses did. But when the business meeting was over, he hung out there. Because he wasn't there for business. He was there to get to know God. He wanted to know the heart of God. He wanted to know the mind of God. He literally just hung out at the tent to meet with God and to hang out there. What does your worship look like? Where are you? Who does yours more reflect? Do you genuinely want to abide in the presence of God just for the purpose of abiding in the presence of God? God established a temple, okay? He established a temple 
Um, bear with me. We're getting to the end here. Little history lesson, but it, it, we're, it's, it's good. He established a, a physical place for himself to dwell among mankind. In the beginning was the Garden of Eden. You know, most people argue theologically the Garden of Eden was the temple of God. That's where he hung out. The presence of God was there hanging out with mankind. It's where man meets God, right? The temple. Then we know that um, with Moses, it was the tabernacle. It was the, the tent of the meeting. And literally, God went where they went. You know, if they all been camping, you know how that is, you know? I love camping. I hate setting up and tearing down camp. Not a fun time. I don't know how I fit that stuff in the car when we got here, but it ain't fitting in now. So kids, you're getting squished, whatever. You know, you get in there now, and here, you throw stuff on top of them, and good luck on the ride home. At least you'll be safe if we have an accident, because you ain't going nowhere, right? <laughs> Hated that. But literally, that's, that, that was the presence of God went with them. He, would, he was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When God moved... When the presence of God moved, the people didn't say, God, where are you? I don't feel you anymore. I don't feel your presence. I don't get the warm tinglies, you know? Why don't you come back? Where are you? No. The people said, whoa, there goes the presence of God. Guess where I got to be? In the presence of God. Moses said, if your presence doesn't go, I ain't going. Right? Who are we? Where are we at? Where are we at? Anyway continue on um yeah because i lost myself here so in the beginning okay and then it was with moses they traveled together then the temple was the first permanent temple building that started in the heart and mind of david he wanted to build a temple he didn't feel right that he was in a castle and god was in a tent just didn't seem right to him right god said nope not yours to build your son solomon would build it so solomon built a temple amazing place by the way after about 400 years, God's people forgot the purpose of the temple. They're going through the motions of being a person of God, but they weren't really a person of God. Anybody ever do that? I'm your pastor. I'm going to admit I've gone through the motions just for the sake of going through the motions, right? And God brought in the Bob Babylonians. <laughs> That's the Cartoon Network version of this. The Babylonians. <laughs> the Babylonians. He brought in the Babylonians and destroyed the thing. 400 years later, came and destroyed the temple like they burnt the place down. Anything that could be burnt down was burnt down. That's, that's what the Bible says. And they took off all the treasures because everything is gold-plated, you know. I mean, God, God's into bling. Everything is gold, platinum-plated, you know, the, the jewels and everything. They took it all. They stole it all. Then about 70, uh, let's see. Um, then came Ezra, right, Meg? Then came Ezra. Ezra built the second temple. Um, and that temple lasted, lasted for years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I have it in here somewhere, 600 years. Yeah, 600 years. This was the same temple that you read about in the gospel accounts. This is the temple that Jesus went to. This is the temple that Jesus went to, the, the temple that... He said, uh, God, I'll destroy that in 30 days and God will rebuild it, you know. And the one that they're walking by and disciples were like, whoa, look at this place. Like, it was just amazing, you know. And uh, we know that actually Herod built on to that temple and it was just an amazing place. Um, and by the way, I encourage you, read the book of Ezra and see how God can move on ungodly hearts. God moved the heart of a very ungodly man in fact, he was the leader of the world, the greatest man in the world, and yet God moved in the heart. Hey, you guys, you all come together and go build a temple for God. And, and by the way, take all the resources you need, all the gold, silver. Hey, people, people of the kingdom, give them what they need. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? God can do that. He can still do that today. He can still do that today. Anyway, it's just an amazing testimony to read through. It's a tremendous testimony of God's goodness that should stir up our faith and hope that even when things are looking really bad and even when you're not where you're supposed to be and you're feeling homesick, God can, like that, like that, just draw it all back together. Anyways, that temple was destroyed more than 600 years later. It was 70 years after Jesus resurrected from the dead. And there's, there's only one part of that that still remains, and it's the Wailing Wall over in Jerusalem today, right? 
It's crazy to think about. The Western Wall, that one wall still remains today. Um, it's just cool to think about those places. Now, those permanent um, temples had different areas. One was the outer courts. The outer courts, that's where everyone's welcome to hang out. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. That was a place where there were like these big, like they called them seas, big old bassinets of water. And you know, that's where you could go and you could basically clean up your life before you enter in. You know, it was a, a place of purification. It's a place where anybody was welcome to attend. That's where, that is the area where um, Jesus flipped tables, right? And he's like, this is a house of prayer and people were making money off of things. And is, anyway, I won't go into all the details there. There's a lot of, a lot of cool parts about that. You know, why he, he, he flipped the tables of those selling doves. You know, God cares about poor folk. If you read the Old Testament, the, the pigeons and doves, those were the lowest offering you could bring to God for the forgiveness of your sin. It's what Joseph and Mary brought, you know. And yet, you had people on the outside of the courts, in those outer courts, making money off of down-and-out people, making money off their sinful condition so they can get forgiven. It's just, nah, Jesus had enough of it. He flipped some tables, and he's like, enough of this. It ain't right taking advantage of people, right? Then, so there was the outer court where everyone was welcome. Then there was the inner court. This was a holy place, a place that was set apart for the priests. And that is where they, they performed their various services to God. That's where things like the showbread was set up and they had the uh, altars of incense. And, and by the way, man, that place, you ever walk into a, like a place where they smoke meats? Or go to stands when it's bacon season, you know? Man, that, that had to be what the, that's what I pictured the temple smelled like. Because all those burnt sacrifices and offerings, man, you know, they'd butcher them there and then they smoked them. And it had to smell awesome. I'm, I'm sorry, I just I kind of get jealous about being there. It would draw me in. I'd probably hang out at the temple all the time, you know. Leave there smelling like it, you know. Good stuff. But anyways, then there's the, and that's where the priests performed all of their duties. That's where man, worship was happening day and night. Um, sacrifice being made. There was a table of incense and you name it. All those things um, were happening. Then, within that, there was an inner sanctuary within the inner court. And that place was known, actually not yet, I'm sorry. That place was known as the Holy of Holies. That place was known as... Um, as the most holy place. That is where the Ark of the Covenant was located. That's where, you know, with the mercy seat on top of it, that's where the very presence of God was. And there was only one person allowed into that room once a year. And it was crazy what that man had to go through to make sure that all of his sins were purified and taken care of before he entered in so that he didn't die in the presence of God. And they called that day the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. That place was separated from the rest with a, a curtain or a veil. It was uh, separated. Um, you can kind of see it there, uh, what it looked like. There, there's details of all these things. Sizes, shapes, what it looked like. You can read that in the Old Testament. It's stuff a lot of us just skip through. But here's the point. There were very specific requirements of how and when people could approach the presence of God. Very specific, very detailed requirements. Most of those surrounded sacrifices that were needed and offerings that were needed to cover the sins of the people, including the priesthood and even the high priest. He had to be forgiven of sins. In fact, he had to be forgiven of sins that he didn't even know he committed, sins of ignorance. He, you know, you got the whole scapegoat thing, and it just, it, man, what, what the people had to do to worship God was huge. Like, man, we, we got to sit our butts down in a seat. We don't even have to do that. You can worship God wherever you're at, wherever you're at, you know. What these people had to go through prepare themselves for the presence of God and to enter in was huge. And i got to admit, I'd, I'd be less likely to run to sin if I had to sacrifice like a year's of my wages. If I had to pay that to have some fun, whew, it wouldn't be fun anymore, right? <laughs> the sad thing is, I should look at that empty cross and realize the price that it really cost and really be less likely to run into it, right? Okay, so here's the point. God went and he fulfilled all those requirements for us. All of those things, none of those things went away. In fact, in, Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul goes into detail explaining that all those temples and the tabernacle, all of those things were a shadow of what is in heaven. All of those things were a copy of what is in the heavenly places right now. In fact, John went into the New Jerusalem, Ezekiel went into the uh, New Jerusalem, and they saw the temple of God. They saw it. It's still there today. But everything changed 
Because God required, fulfilled everything that was required. Because we on our own could never fully satisfy all those requirements of God to properly worship Him and to hang out with Him and to live life to its fullest. We could never do it on our own. Never. Jesus, the great high priest, lived a sinless life, shed his own blood as a sacrifice of our sins, that perfect blemishless lamb. Then he rose again to new life. And it says that when Jesus died on the cross, this literally happened. I love this picture. Okay, when Jesus said, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, when he gave his life on the cross, that veil, that temple curtain that separated the holy of holies, the presence of God, it separated man from God. It was literally torn. This huge earthquake happened. All three Gospels, well, three of the four recorded. And then the veil was torn. Because when Jesus fulfilled the requirements for us on our behalf, there's now nothing separating us from the presence of God. The veil's torn. That's huge. Huge. Everything changed because everything that God required of mankind to approach him has been fulfilled. Now that those requirements have been fulfilled, everything changes for us. The entire point is that the temple was never about building up a place where we go to encounter the presence of God. The temple was never about separating us from the presence of God. The, the, the temple was never about any of those things. The temple was actually all about encountering the presence of God. The temple was about providing a place for us to enter in so that we could have communion with God, so we could hang out with Him, so we could be friends. In fact, we have the glory and the honor of doing so much more than this because this morning God is calling us. He's calling us to, to move into transition, no longer from out there in the world. He is calling us into the outer courts to draw near to Him, to get close to Him. And he's doing more than that. He is drawing us to go from the outer courts into the inner courts. He is calling us into his service. He is calling us to bring offerings and sacrifices. He's calling us to be holy in that inner place where we set ourselves apart for God's purposes. And he is doing more than that. He is calling us beyond the inner courts into the holy of holies. He is calling us into the most holy place. He is calling us directly into his presence. And that is huge, huge. No longer can only one person do that once a year and go and have all these ritual, you know, ceremonial cleansings. He is calling us in to experience his presence. He is calling us to move in. Not covered by the blood of animals, but covered by the blood of Christ. The spotless, perfect lamb. In fact, we have the honor of doing more than just entering into his presence. We get to carry his presence with us. Look what changed, Meg. This is huge. This is huge. If we could just grasp this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? There ain't no building anymore. That's why Jesus said he's going to destroy that temple in three days. There's no need to go wail at the wailing wall anymore. You are the temple. Your body is the temple of God, right? I once heard a guy say that he knows that his body is the temple because his wife treats him like a god, always bringing him burnt offerings, right? <laughs> Anyways, bad, bad joke, bad time. <laughs> but this reality... We don't need to build no, you know, a lot of people believe that Ezekiel's temple was a third temple that's going to be built. We know there's going to be another temple built during the millennium. We know all those things. But we don't need to go looking for some place to worship God. You are the temple. You are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. In fact, he goes on and he reminds us in verse 20, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. The, the, God sacrificed himself. And he says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul wrote very extensively an appeal to his fellow Jews in the book of Hebrews, explaining this fulfillment in detail, that we are the temple at this point. We carry the presence of God within us. The mercy seat is your heart, and Christ's presence rests on it. 
Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you are the mercy seeds. Now you've received mercy. Have mercy, right? All those fuller, full house people. Anyways, anyway. Going on. So, but here's what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. And I'm ending with this. But I want this, this not to be like some, I don't know, history lesson or just words. I want us to understand the reality of what God is calling us into. The reality of the cost that he paid for us to live a holy, sinless life. He paid a high price to make it possible. Not for us to enter into his presence, for us to carry his presence and to live with his presence. He wants to be your friend. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to live life with you. He filled you with the Holy Spirit, his presence. But here's what, what Paul said, which kind of summarizes everything. In fact, he says this in verse 1. After going on and on and on like Pastor Steve this morning, he says, now this is the point. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the point. This is the main thing we're saying. We have a high priest. And he sat down at the right hand of God on the throne of majesty in heaven. And he serves in the sanctuary. But it's the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by one that mankind made. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, for Jesus also, to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Because there's already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is merely a copy. Merely a shadow of what is happening in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. By God, see to it that everything is created according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And he says in verse 6, But the fact is, the ministry that Jesus has received is superior to Moses's. This new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And he is a mediator who is superior to the old one. Because the new covenant is established on better promises. So this morning, where are you? Where are you? Where are you at in your faith, Meg? Right? Why don't we enter deeper? Let go of the things of the world. I know they bring you comfort and satisfaction, but man, are they temporary. And they don't lead to really long-term fulfillment or joy, right? Only God can provide those things. Only his presence can really, truly satisfy us. So let's enter deeper and further into the presence of God. Let's, let's run away from sin and start running to God. Give him a chance. He promised that he'd satisfy those desires with good things. Give him a chance to. See what he'll do. Enter in. Every time you, you, you I'm sure you're going to hear about it, ladies, you know, if you hang out with, um, you know, in that study with the 40-day sugar fast, but every time you go to run to that thing, just stand and be like, you know what? No. That, that was the old self, but I'm a new creation. I used to be that person, and I used to run to those things, but I'm not doing it anymore. I'm tired of those things. I'm tired of those things having a grip on me. I'm tired of being a slave to those things. I'm tired of them controlling my life, telling me how to live. I'm the Lord's. I've been bought the price. So from now on, Jesus, you know this desire that I want to fulfill? Satisfy it somehow, some way with something good. Something good that is lasting, that is satisfying, truly satisfying. Let's move beyond the world. Let's move beyond the outer courts. Let's move beyond the inner courts. And let's go straight into the presence of God. Everything required for you to do that has been fulfilled through Jesus. Now you can go running straight to the heavenly throne. You're seated in heavenly places with him. Let's enter straight into the presence of God and get to know him more fully. Let's live life together with him as it always is supposed to be, carrying the very presence of God with us. Let's extravagantly worship God with abandonment, with an inexpressible joy, because he has done this for us. He has invited us in. He has risen us up to a new life of victory. We don't have to be slaves anymore. We are a child of God. Amen? We are more than we were born for. We are who we were created for. And we can only do all these things because God has made a way, right? Your sins are forgiven. 
Even the ones you did when you're done sitting here today. They're forgiven. They're done. Forget about it, right? It's in the past. You're a new creation. It's a new day. There's new love. There's new mercy. There's new grace. And we're going to live it out. There is nothing separating us from God's presence. The veil has been torn. And that veil over your mind has been lifted. Now you can see clearly the revelation of God. Now you can see clearly what God is up to here and now. Let's demand, like Moses did, that the glory of God not just fills the physical temple, but that it fills our lives. I love those, those Pentecostal services in the Old Testament. When the glory cloud came, people were on their face on the ground. They couldn't even move because the glory was just that weighty. Let the glory of God fill our lives, Lord. Fill our lives to overflowing. And right now, we're going to choose to worship. We're going to choose to enter in. And you know the freedom that is here in this place. If right now you're sensing that you just got to get right with God, you don't have to be at a special place anymore. You don't have to be at a temple. But we set apart the altar area that we call it here. It's a place to just meet with Him. It's a place that we've just set apart with that purpose. But He'll meet with you there in your chair. He'll meet with you out in the car. He'll meet with you wherever you're at as long as you turn to Him. This morning is an opportunity to get right with God again and to stop lingering in the outer courts with one foot in the world and one foot saying I'm a Christian. And, you know, it's time to stop messing around with these things. It's time to be who you're called to be. It's time to just surrender our lives to God and just let Him have His way. And it is a step of trust because I don't know where He's going to take my life. And He may take me through some very uncomfortable things, but God, you know best, right? Just trust him. Let's go beyond the world, beyond the outer courts, beyond the inner courts, straight into the presence of God. And so to accommodate that, as there was in the Old Testament, as there is in heaven, that's why we do music. It's just a, one expression of worship. You know, there's going to be worship music happening, but I just encourage you in your own way to seek after God and surrender your life to him. Get, wherever you're at, go deeper. Wherever you're at, go farther. Wherever you're at, break off, crucify that old sinful self, and let your new self shine through. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do right here and right now today.